Hello and welcome to a very special off-season episode of Head in the Game, this podcast all about Gaelic games at Queen's University and we are going to be looking back to an historic event which occurred 60 years ago this year and that was the first Ulster team uh, from Queen's who went and won the Sigerson Cup down in County Monaghan beating UCD in the final after a replay having been 11 points down at halftime in the first game and 6 points down at halftime in the replay they managed to dig themselves out of the hole both times and a dramatic uh, late score then from Derry's Tom Scullion saw them emerge victorious in that replay so uh, as you're going to hear later uh, in the episode we're going to hear from Quite a few of the players, not just Queen's University players, but some of the UCD players too, who participated in that series of games and they're going to reflect on what they remember and what it meant at the time. And the interviews that you're going to hear in a moment were conducted at a a special dinner that we gave to mark the anniversary of Queen's success in the competition in 1958. And we invited the surviving members of the team back to Riddle Hall along with some of their uh, adversaries from UCD. And Jack Devaney, the chair of the past members union, uh, went around, I suppose, with a a roving mic and conducted a few interviews. And we thought it would be great to record those and to get uh, a sort of an oral history of the day uh, down for posterity. So, that's really going to be the main focus of the uh, the podcast today. And just before I introduce the recorded segment of the podcast, uh, it would be remiss of me not to say a special word of thanks to Uchtaron Common Class Gail John Horan for attending that evening, as well as to Uchtaron Coral Olu Oliver Galligan uh, and to Brian McAvoy as well for their continued support at uh, many of the events that we run and we look forward to continuing that relationship in the future. So the first voice that you're going to hear in a moment is that of Jack Devaney, Jack, the chair of the Past Members Union. And Jack gives us a little introduction into the the events surrounding the Sigerson Cup final of 1958-59. And then uh, I suppose he introduces each speaker in turn. So we hope you enjoy this trip down memory lane. Uh, it's a fascinating story of how the team came together, the story of the game itself or the games themselves. And uh, a, a remarkable success for Queen's University, as I said earlier, the first Ulster team to emerge victorious from a Sigerson Cup campaign and uh, we hope you enjoy this. Just for those of you who, who, um, who weren't there on that particular day or have no memory of 1959, there might be a few more that might fall into that category, just to place a bit of context uh, to all of this and you can read about it in your wee booklet as, as well because By 1958, by the autumn of 1958, Queen's had been competing in the Sigerson Cup for well over 20 years. They had been founded way back in 1932. And on only three occasions had they got to the final. And on each of those three occasions, they were the hosts. So there was a certain advantage, you could argue, to actually being hosts. And John Horan outlined some of those reasons earlier on. But by 1957, UCD were the kingpins again and uh, they won a second title in a row and did so by defeating Queens by nine points in the semi-finals. So coming into the 1958 campaign there was as I indicated earlier on little expectation uh, for Queens outside of the management and players who I think themselves had little inkling of perhaps what was possible and particularly with the likes of Paddy O'Hara on board at that stage. And, and so it began, and then it finished on a Sunday in February in 1959. It actually finished 86 days after it started. 
And in the long history of the Sigerson Cup, there has never been a longer duration for a Sigerson Cup than then. But it's kind of pa part of the folklore of the competition, the folklore of Queens and indeed the GAA. And for that reason in itself, uh, rather than have to burden anyone with the prospect that they're going to have to make a drawn-out speech here tonight after dinner, we're going to take a walk around the room and maybe have a conversation uh, with one or two people about that. And particularly taking account of the context of what happened back then, there are many small stories that are knitted into all of that. Now, in the time that I've already spent with the microphone, some of the people whom I've already told in advance about this might have forgotten the stories that they're about to tell. Um, but the first man I'm going to come upon, and I do have a second microphone here. If you don't want the second microphone, by all means, if you want to tell me to get lost, you can. Uh, but Phil Stewart, and Phil Stewart, um, I have to start somewhere, Phil. Uh, Phil Stewart, as you know, was part of the Derry team that got to the All-Ireland Final only a couple of months earlier. Uh, and Phil was uh, centre field, I think, on the, on the Queen's team that day. But the extraordinary part of the drawn game, maybe also the replay, was the fact that there were 11 points down at halftime. And in most cases, 11-point deficit at halftime means that it's insurmountable. <laughs> I'll stop talking, uh, Phil, but you can pick the story up from here because Phil scored the goal just at the end. There were three points down at, uh, with only a couple of minutes ago. I do apologize, Jim McDonald, for dragging you through all this again, but um, three points down with only a couple of minutes to go, and then something extraordinary happened. You're stealing my thunder, John. <laughs> it's just, yes, uh, for Queens at that time, Queens in the 50s and 40s were the whipping boys of the Sigerson Cup. All the other three universities that were in it at the time always chose Queens in the first match, a walkover. You know, so with that tradition behind us, uh, we didn't have much hope at all when I went to Queens in 56 or 7 and so on. But we had one advantage, and that was Paddy O'Hara. Paddy O'Hara was a great Antrim player who played for them in the famous 1947 All-Ireland final, semi-final when Kerry kicked them off the pitch at Croke Park. Hope there's no Kerry people here. <laughs> but anyway, Paddy was came our trainer, and Paddy started to tell us we were as good as the Southern Universities. Maybe there's a wee bit of a partitionist thing going on there, but anyway, Paddy took us over, and he did a great job with us in the Sigerson Cup, and he says, you can win it. And we went out against Galway, and we beat Galway in the semi-final, and we were into the semi-final against UCD, and Paddy again tried to inspire us, but in the first half, as John has already mentioned, it looked as if we were dead and dusted. 2-6 to one point at half time. Talk about making things hard for yourself. Paddy took us into the dressing room, and he gave us a wee bit of a dressing gown. He said, you northerners are better than this. You've got to get out, and you can only improve in the second half. It was an inspirational speech. I can't quote it all for you. But he sent us out in the second half, and the first score of the second half, if I remembered right, was a 50. And I think Jim McDonnell stuck it over the bar. Am I right, Jim? Yeah. 
two seven to one point. That was the last UCD score. Queen set about them with a, a, a verve and a fight that we didn't believe we had in us. And we whittled them back until, as you said, John, we were three points down in the last minute of the match, and we got a 50. Well, Peter Smith here beside me. Peter could put a 50 over the bar, the same as you had put a 14-yard free over the bar. No problem. But what use was a point? So Peter was told to drop the ball short. And I'm told, I'm not quite sure of the folklore, but Mick Brewster said to John O'Neill, God rest his soul, Mick Brewster said, I'm, I'm going up here for this 50. And John O'Neill nearly panicked. You stay where you are, you're full back. You're supposed to stay here. I'm no friggin' good here anymore. I'm going up to the forward line. And he went up to the forward line, and the 50 was dropped short to Mick Brewster. And Mick had the ball in his hand, and uh, about two or three UCD players descended on him. And there was nowhere to go. And the next thing, he threw the ball out to a certain Derry player. I can't remember his name. But anyway, <laughs> uh, it, the player in, in question turned around and belted the ball on the blind and went into the back of the net like a rocker. Incidentally, the fullback for UCD was told me this afterwards, was Felix McKnight, who was a colleague of ours in St. Patrick's College, Armagh, but went to UCD, and he was fullback for UCD. And he says, Phil, he says, that shot, he says, I got my fingers to it. I just, you know, I couldn't believe it. He says, I got my fingers to it, but thanks be to God, he didn't stop it. And that was us into the, into the replay. And uh, the replay, just to make a long story short, Half time, we stood watching them again in the first half, 6 1 at half time. Paddy O'Hara says, I'm not going to make a long speech, he says. It was 12 1 the last time. It's 6 1 now, so you're definitely going to win. And we went out again, and there was another dairy fellow called Tom Scullion. And Tom, I never thought he was a good shot, but he stuck the last one over the bar. And that was us. We won the match. And the Sigerson, as you say, that was our first Sigerson Cup. It was a momentous occasion for us, I have to say that. And I'm 82 now, and I still dream about it. Yeah, and that brings us to the, um, to the replayed final in Bally Bay. And the last score of the game was kicked by Tom Scullion to win the, win the tie and win the title. And uh, Tom, Tom is a man who, uh, I, I suppose above all others, he, he manages to bring a lot of the group together regularly. And I, I presume they still buy you a drink when they do so, Tom. <laughs> Except I'm driving tonight. <laughs> uh, your memory of that score and those well, last couple of minutes. Sean O'Neill could tell you better than I can because he always tells that, and he also says it was 50 yards, but the next time he's there, it's 60 yards. And I don't know where it's at now, but it certainly is beyond 60 yards. <laughs> but anyway, uh, could I just say it, uh, it's a great privilege to have won a Sigerson medal, and equally to have scored the one on point, but the important thing from that is the team, team spirit that Paddy O'Hara and the boys had developed. 
It was so strong that it has endured, as you can see, right to this day. And the friendship is just unbreakable. And that's with the real winning of that Sigerson. And Tom, thanks for him. <laughs> now, even though it was 60 years ago, it would be hard to believe them being students that there wasn't plenty of hijinks involved and uh, there's plenty of good characters in, in both of these sides. But uh, Kevin Halpenny and Kevin from Jonesborough, who played for Armagh, now based in Dublin a long time. And uh, Kevin, you were heavily involved in the club, but a lot of good stories, almost certainly, from back then. And I'm sure you have kept some in reserve. Well, I can hardly remember anything up the match. <laughs> Uh, I, I recommend you, if you want to know the detail, read Donald uh, uh, McAnallan's book. That covers everything. That's all the stuff that I'd forgotten. My memory of the Sigerson that year is on the Saturday night when we were closeted in the room in the Santa Maria Hotel, I think it was, wasn't it? And uh, we felt that we were on the... As, as Tony Blair would say, the hand of history was on our shoulders. We felt something was happening here. There was an extraordinary bond among all these dissolute northerners that we were really going to go south and do it this time. We were almost like the, 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 the O'Neills, the Maguires, the, the tribes gathering to go down the gap of the north and attack and get vengeance for a change down there. And uh, we needed... Uh, a fantastic, uh, fantastic spirit, fantastic unity, fantastic memory. That's what I have. And what we really needed was a was a good war cry. <clears throat> it was a good slogan, something we could rally around. And uh, our, our uh, president, John A. Macaulay, was from the lands of Antrim, a very proud man of that. And Ambrose's brother. But before him in the 1860s was born in Glenarm, Owen McNeil, who went to St. Malachy's, who went to Queen's, who went to Dublin, and with, with uh, the later president, um, Douglas Hyde, formed the Gaelic League. And in, in 1913, he realized the league needed to strengthen to get away from culture and into politics and into making things start to happen in Ireland as a reaction to the Ulster volunteers. And he wrote a famous article. <coughs> what was it, Huey? The North began. He wrote, the North began, the North held on, God bless the Northern men. I thought it was Christy Mullen made it up. I researched it. It came from Owen McNeil, a great Irishman by any, any stretch. And that was chanted and we were in that room and we were unbeatable on that Saturday night. We were ready for it. And in the middle of all this celebration, we, an extraordinary thing happened. To me, the greatest example of sportsmanship I think I ever encountered. In the middle of this fervor, we were going to, we were going to do it this time. Phil Stewart called for attention and stood up and says, lads, just want to appeal to you, don't be arrogant in victory tomorrow. <laughs> Thank you. Um, 
We have the pleasure of having you here, Jim McDonnell. Um, I don't know whether it feels like torture, um, but to be fair to UCD, you got back on the horse the following year and won the Sigerson again and won the next one the following year. You were captain in 1956, but that was a, that was a very fine UCD team that you were part of. It was. It was a good team. As a matter of fact, we were going for four in a row when we met Queen's. And I'm not going to talk about that lucky goal that Phil Stewart got, that fluke that he got. You know, we'll not talk about that. But anyhow, I'd like to congratulate once again that Queen's team because at the time, of course, UCD had a great peak compared to Queen's. And I suppose we were probably confident enough. On the first days, Phil Stewart said there we led by 11 points at half time and there was no pressure on, but we got the shock of our lives. And then we went back to Belly Bay and another shock. So uh, it was a great victory for Queen's, but the Sigerson is a competition apart, I think, from nearly any. It's the second oldest competition, I think, in the country, bar the All-Ireland Championship. And started by a proud Tyrone man, uh, George Clifford, who worked in both uh, Galway and Cork, and eventually in UCD, where he put up the Sigerson Cup. And the aim of the Sigerson was to promote friendship between the different parts of Ireland. There were four handles on the cup for the four provinces, and the friendship mightn't have been too good on certain occasions, but generally speaking, it was a great competition. And no less a man than Enda Colin uh, said at one stage that of all the competitions he took part in, including the All-Ireland, the National League, the Railway Cups, that the competition that gave him most satisfaction was the Sigerson. And the Sigerson brought people from all over the country, and we made friends. The first time I met a young fellow called Sean O'Neill, and we had many a battle after, and played with them on the Railway Cup for many years. And Phil Stewart, and we were friends for 60 years, and we do talk an odd time still. But congratulations again to Queen's. It was a wonderful victory, and I'm glad they haven't forgotten it. Because I remember myself winning a championship in Cavan. I only won the one, but it was the first one ever that the Gales won. And the first one is the sweetest. And while we remember victory, we also remember defeats. And I think it was Andrew Agassiz, the great tennis player, said, a victory is never as good as a defeat feels bad. And I still feel bad about that one in 1959. Good luck. <laughs> um, one remarkable feature of the Queen's team back then was the fact that eight to ten of them had come through St. Patrick's College in Armagh and from a whole variety of counties. But one of those from St. Pat's Armagh was also on the UCD team that day um, and played a, a significant role. In fact, the previous year, Felix McKnight was the winning captain of the team that won the Sigerson Cup. And in the years afterwards, of course, he studied medicine and he moved to Australia. Uh, and back then when he moved, I suppose Australia felt as it certainly was at the other end of the world. But he has been a, a regular visitor back home and is very disappointed that he didn't get the opportunity to come back for this occasion. I suppose had we given him just a little bit extra time, knowing Felix McKnight, he would certainly have done that. Um, but we're thinking in the modern age with modern technology, surely there's a means by which uh, we can get a message through from Felix McKnight himself. Um, because he had a lot of good friends, not just on the UCD team, but also on the Queen's team itself. Um, so we did make contact with him, and he sent this message from Australia. 
Greetings from sunny Western Australia to wet Northern Ireland. Great for you to have an anniversary, it's the 50th anniversary of the Sigerson. Uh, fond memories and not so fond memories of that Sigerson. Half the Queen's team were classmates of mine in the Abbey of the Armagh. And uh, even that was so, I still wanted to win the damn thing. Uh, we were the champions, so we thought we would win. But uh, we, didn't, uh, we didn't sort of uh, think about Paddy O'Hara. Paddy O'Hara was way ahead of his time. You had your training on Sunday morning, which was uh, unheard of in those days. We were having a big breakfast, and you were down training on the football field. So you were way ahead of us in time. But anyway, you, you opened the door for Ulster football. And uh, Felix McKnight uh, did, of course, as part of that reference, a very important figure as part of that Queen's team was uh, Paddy O'Hara. And Sean O'Neill, if I may come to you next. Um, Paddy was a, an important figure in your football career, but just to describe his impact in coming to Queen's, because uh, it wouldn't probably have been possible then to make the kind of breakthrough that you did without a figure like Paddy. Uh, yes, I think, I think uh, that's, that's quite right. Uh, in my early career, I had a great great fortune to come under the guidance of two of the greatest uh, coaches in my view in the, in the history of Gaelic football. You probably don't know them. Well, you'd know Paddy because you, he was, he was uh, much more uh, well known afterwards. But the games master in the Abbey School in, in Uri was a man called Jerry Brown. And as a, a 14, 13, 14 year old, I came under Jerry coaching in, in, in the Abbey and he was light years ahead of his time. It was quite extraordinary the way that he coached a young team. Tactical, we were playing tactical football in our forward line which I never ever played afterwards in any other team. Would you believe that? It was so simple we destroyed defences with some of the simplest tactics we ever thought but this was because Jerry Brown was uh, way ahead of his time. He, he was thinking uh, tactically about how to dismantle defences and with a very, can you imagine a, a team as young as that, 14, 15 year old? And yet he was able to show us how we could dismantle defences, and we did dismantle the defences. So when I came to Queen's, I had the great fortune to come under the guidance of Paddy O'Hara, who, in, in, in my view, and I know in, in, in the view of, of all of those who came under him in Queen's, he was one of the most distinguished managers in the history of Gaelic football. He is not recognized now as that, but we know what he did, we know what he was capable of. And the achievement of bringing Sigerson Cup back to Belfast at that time was absolutely unbelievable. It really was. It, it, it was just, it was, it was off the, 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 what's the word for it? It was off the record, really. It just, it just couldn't happen. But Paddy never believed that things can't happen. He believed that they could happen if he wanted them to happen and if you prepared to to work hard to make it happen and he certainly uh, got us prepared, the way that he prepared the teams, the training techniques, they were all simple, they were all common sense, but it meant that he presented uh, a team on the pitch ready to go to war with any team that wanted to go to war with them. And the, the, not to go over what has already been said about, about the, the, the two games in Galway. But they were phenomenal. To be, to be 11 points down at half time in any game, I, I would ask anybody here to speak up and say, do you know of any game 
anywhere in the history of, 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 of Gaelic football where a team 11 points down at half time went 12 points down and came back to draw the match. It's quite extraordinary and this was down, I think anybody, any of the boys who are here I say would, would agree that it, it was down to Paddy O'Hara and the inspirational talk that he gave to the team at half time. Here we were, 11 points down, where do you go? Where do you go? Except here was Paddy O'Hara and you were to go. And he confronted us with our performance and said, why have you, why have you let yourself down so badly? Why, why have you let the, the, the university down? You, you've let yourself down, the university down. You've let your counties down. You've let your clubs down. You've let your families down. What, what more could, you, could he hit you with? But that's what he did. And he got through. A very sobered uh, team took the field, but a very determined uh, team took the field for the, for the second half. And we went about our work, and we we sold our way right through that, that half. And, and, and uh, Zach, I, I didn't realize that UCD didn't score. Apart from the first point, that first point, I think they didn't score again that game. It's quite remarkable. But it came to the end. You've heard Phil has told you of that dramatic equalizing score. Uh, and uh, it was a really a marvelous score, a marvelous, a marvelous goal. Uh, but I can remember the end of that particular game. So we had the draw, and uh, the balls kicked out, and it came across Brenton. Brenton Donahue got his hands on it. And Brenton soloed straight to the sideline and kicked it into the next field. <laughs> and that was because we knew the, the game was up, and we were happy to get away with the draw. And that was, we then went to a replay in Bally Bay again. It was a remarkable, a remarkable game again where. We were six points down again. This is, this is 12, this is 18 points we had to pull back to win that game, to win that trophy. That is quite extraordinary in any, in any sport. To make a comeback like that had to be inspirational. And I think anyone of the players here, and the players unfortunately aren't here with us, would, would agree that the, it would never have happened without the, the inspiration of Paddy O'Hara because he just would not accept defeat. He would not allow us to accept defeat. And, not in a, Paddy was a very inspirational man in the way he, he approached those who, who played under him. He wasn't a bully, he wasn't threatening, but he, he inspired each player in that group to reach way beyond themselves and to go beyond where they thought maybe they were killed of course. And with the result that uh, we, got, we got through in Bally Bay again and Tom Tom's going Tom, Tom, modest man, scored an absolutely magnificent winning point from well, 45, 50 yards out, wherever you like, on the sideline, right half forward. Tom got the ball and he was maybe a, a foot from the sideline. And he kicked one of the most amazing points I've ever seen in all my time watching, watching Gaelic sport. It was a remarkable point and it was a great point to win a great match. And Tom, I think you should, you should really treasure that particular moment because it really was a very historic moment for, for Queens and for all of us who played there. So uh, it was a privilege to be a member of that team. It was a privilege to play with those players. Captain by Hugh O'Kane, one of the greatest sporting footballers that I ever came across in my career. Uh, I, I, I told this story many times about playing in the South Antrim Leagues. We played in the South Antrim Leagues in that time and we were a student team and we were, we were, we were kicking a kicking ball really for some of the more senior clubs in, in, in Antrim because we were very young but uh, 
in all my time playing in a Queen's jersey, we never bowed the knee to any Anthem club. And we met some fairly tough ones, I can tell you. But uh, I remember playing in, in, in a game against uh, one, of the, one of the Belfast clubs, not name it. Uh, and uh, Hugh was under, he caught the ball and he was under heavy pressure. And one fellow came in behind him to hit him a, hit him a foul blow. And what happened? One of his own teammates came across to him and said to him, don't be doing that. That's that's Hugh Kane. Don't you be hitting him. And I remember I had heard this. <laughs> I was astounded because they would have knocked us out of the park and never thought a thing about it. But Hugh Kane, don't touch Hugh Kane. Could you could you explain that or what what was the reason for that? I'll tell you what the reason was. It was Hugh Kane was a gentleman footballer in every every way. Even though he was kicked and bullied, tried to be wasn't it, bullied, but he was kicked and booted and elbowed. And they tried to close him down because such a magnificent fielder of the ball, a magnificent player. But they tried everything they could, a lot of these teams, to try and stop him playing. And he never, ever once did I ever see him retaliate. He wasn't, he wasn't afraid. They couldn't intimidate him. He still would play on. He'd still go to the ball. And if he was slowly put the ball down and, and run on, he wouldn't even look to see who had hit him. I used to marvel at that. Because most ordinary guys would say, I'll sort you out at some stage down the road. But that was not the way that Hugh, Hugh saw things. And uh, I remember this, this, this fellow, uh, going, one of his own teammates going off and, and shouting and saying, Leave that fellow, that's that's Hugh Kane, leave him alone. <laughs> I could not believe it. So it's a tribute to Hugh, and it is a big tribute to you, and I mean that. Do you remember that? You probably don't, but I, I remember it because I thought it was quite extraordinary. But uh, there, were, there were very memorable days I thoroughly enjoyed, and I've got memories of playing uh, with the Queen's Club. And I think that the tradition established by that team is carried on proudly by all the players who take on a Queen's jersey ever since. And to all those who have been officiated and, and helped in the, in the running of the club, it's all right, the players get the glamour end of it, but to those officers in the club who kept the club going and still do keep it going and, and, and retain their independence, which I am delighted to hear Jackie saying that, that they, they, they run the club and they run it well. And we're very, very lucky and very proud indeed to have them. Thank you. Thank you. Great, Sean O'Neill. Um, just a, a couple of uh, closing contributions before we go back to presentations. Um, it, it feels in some cases that it's Sigerson and Queen's is a family tradition and probably the stories of old are passed down through generations as well. And uh, many of you who played with him will remember the great Mick Brewster. And uh, Mick's son, Paul, was uh, not just... Uh, a player here at Queen's, but uh, a Sigerson Cup winning captain as well in 1993. And Mick had two boys, and uh, the second boy then in 2000 kicked an extraordinary point that brought a Sigerson final to extra time, and there were winners on that, on that day. So I just want to have a, a word with the, the Brewsters, because um, you, your late mother, who passed away uh, not that long ago, I do remember the day in my Cullen in Galway in 2000, when Tom's won, uh, Tom was part of the team that won the Sigerson Cup, and she said afterwards that all the men in my life today have a Sigerson Cup medal. So it was obviously very important in the years, down the years in your house. It's fair to say it was a very important thing in our house, Jack. Um, and funny, it's great to hear the stories from, from these heroes of mine, heroes of many, everybody. 
that I think played Sigerson football in Queens down through the years. Um, there was a few Armagh troublemakers in our team too, Kevin, uh, if you're honest, but uh, we'll deal with that later. It was, um, and I think I've said this before, um, I suppose as a young kid growing up and you have your, your so unfortunately our dad died uh, and we were all young kids, but the, the sort of community that is the GAA and we have in our clubs and our counties and the special community we have at Queen's as well and being part of that uh, was, was a big part of our life growing up. It was inspirational reading about the heroes of 59 and as a youngster who enjoyed playing football, um, it was a great thing to hold on to. And personally had great enjoyment coming and trying and, and having the, the bit of success. And Tom c can speak too about the, the friends that you make for, for life from that. Uh, and, and Sean uh, is spot on. Th those connections, uh, the family and the wider family, uh, direct or otherwise that you have, are, are, are very, very special indeed. Um, and I know this group, the, 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 the sort of breakthrough team, will be inspiration for, for many, many generations. Uh, I suppose us as the sons, and, and now, you know, Tom Scullion's grandsons. Uh, uh, coming through and playing and wearing, wearing the green jersey. So we, we won't have heard the last of the names associated with the great 59 team and there'll be many, many more great days in the future. And Tom, um, <laughs> by 2000, which was your last year, you were probably beginning to feel the pressure of all that, of managing to get I your hands on this. I think we definitely were, Jack. Uh, the guys had touched on, on the defeats with a few defeats down Tralee in '98 that you were part of and hosting it in '99. So they were there definitely definitely moments you you still actually remember more than the win itself. But um, we had a few great leaders in, on that team, except Dermot and Enda. And I know a lot of people have touched on Paddy Hart, but we had a, a great man in, in charge of us in Desi Ryan, and that you know you know just inventing plays and, and just the way he wanted to play the game and, and the way the boys really devoted themselves to him. That was, that's what we, uh, you know, we bought into and it, it seems it, it just followed on from, from the team in 58-59. I want to talk just briefly to one gentleman finally um, because some of you have managed to get here by simply walking around the corner and some of you have made some decent journeys, but when we extended the invitation to the 1959 panel, there was only one member of that panel, really, who was based outside of Ireland. Uh, and Desi O'Rourke has been based for quite a number of years uh, in the state of Washington, near Seattle, in the United States. And, you know, when you get to New York, you're probably not even halfway there. And uh, we just extended it to Desi, uh, thinking, well, we, we, we don't want to have a situation where he doesn't know about it anyway, but we had no expectation that he'd come home. And sure enough, Desi O'Rourke decided he wanted to come home. And I think that speaks volumes for what this particular occasion and the friendships and the memories that have been generated from this team and that victory really does mean that somebody would get on a flight and come the whole way home. And Desi O'Rourke and his wife, Sheila, you're most welcome here this evening. And Desi, I think Desi deserves a round of applause even for the journey itself.
But Desi, in terms of, um, of primary evidence around that particular victory and the stories, you were the secretary of the club as well back then. That's right. So a lot yeah. of the stuff that you wrote down have been part of this, the folklore since. Yeah, and, and I, first of all, I want to correct history. Like, I think Sean O'Kane or Sean O'Neill got things a little bit wrong about the Abbey football team because my recollection was when we played in the Abbey, not alone did we have to deal with their tactics, but we had to deal with this thing like a quarry up the middle of the, of the field. <laughs> and us folks from St. Pat's Armagh were used to playing on beautiful verdant green turf. And we just couldn't handle that quarry at all, Sean. <laughs> so it did give you a, an advantage in addition to the tactics. But uh, one of the things I thought I would try to do is compare some of the championship teams I've been on and there were really four. You know, the Sigerson one was the one. It was great fun training. It was great fun playing the games. It was great fun going on trips. In fact, it was such great fun that there were parts of Kerry I couldn't even go to 10 years later as <laughs> secretary of the Queen's Club. And some of you may recognize that. Uh, the second great championship team I was on was the Rusley Shamrocks team. And you talked about a band of brothers. And we really were a band of brothers. There were four Murrays. Three O'Rourke's, three Malarkey's, two. And if you hit one Murray, you hit them all. So it was a true band of brothers. And then my third championship team was the Fermanagh All-Ireland team. And that was the most, the best looking football team I ever played on. <laughs> just, just a tour. <laughs> and then my fourth, my fourth championship team was Team Sheila who authorized this trip. Uh, so Sheila and I got engaged uh, a few years after Queen's and we were a very progressive couple. So we decided, first of all, we would have, uh, we'd take marriage counseling and then we would go have uh, uh, physical before we got married. And so we were both working and it was very difficult to find a doctor in the evenings. And so we ended up in this uh, doctor's office up in North Circular Road and uh, it was full of Dublin women and their children and you know all the Dublin talk was going on and so Sheila got called in first. She goes in, she's there for 10 minutes. Did Sheila know you were going to tell the story now? No. <laughs> she, goes in, she, she comes out and says, uh, Doc Carney says everything is okay and Jim McDonald probably would recognize that name. Doc Carney. So I go in next. Half an hour later, I haven't come out. And all these old Dublin ladies are saying, Jesus, he must be dying. He must be dying. Doc Carney only gives you 10 minutes. <laughs> so an hour later, I still hadn't come out. And so now they were really convinced, and she was convinced that I was dying. I, I was not going to make a good husband. So just about then, I came out smiling. And she said, well, what did Doc Carney say about your health? I said, he didn't say anything. Did he examine you? No. She said, what the hell were you doing for the last hour? And I said, we were discussing the decline of the Cavan football team. <laughs> Doc Carney was the, was the doctor to the Cavan football team. And we were discussing all things Gaelic football. So he sent me out into the world to get married, assuming that if you were a footballer, you'd make a good husband. <laughs> so 
giving Sheila no time to respond. Thank you very much. For <laughs> At all. And uh, the final act uh, of the evening, um, I, I know that, and some of you may have observed that uh, in doing the rounds of the room uh, and talking to various individuals, I, I left one aside to the very end. Um, and he's a man who, I suppose, uh, he would feel himself that he had the great privilege of leading this team and having the honour of being the first Queen's man uh, to lift the Sigerson Cup. Um, but he was captain for good reason, because he was a leader of men. And I spoke about some of the others in the same vein, in that uh, beyond his years at Queen's, uh, he had a very, very accomplished uh, career in, here in Belfast in medicine. Um, but as someone who, I suppose, has a special place in the annals of the game here in the university. So I'd like to leave one of the final words tonight to Dr. Hugh O'Kane. Thank you very much, John. Ambrose, ladies and gentlemen, fellow players, I'm one of the few people who has got the worst memory, next to Kevin Hapney, of football games. And I always depended on somebody like Kev uh, Brenton Donaghy to tell me how I played during the game. But this occasion for me is full of mixed memories, but one that happened, Breeze and I, my wife Breeze and I, were in Hintersarten, which is a small village outside Freiburg in Germany, when I got a call from John Devaney to tell me the, the sad news that upset me greatly of the death of our dear friend and fellow colleague, Frank Higgins. And I was stuck in this village, walking the snow-covered streets, and brought back memories of a phone call I got in 1958 from Frank I was at that time in Newton Abbott in the southwest of England as a medical student doing a medical elective. I couldn't discover how Frank located me the day before mobile phones or anything like that. And anyway, he located me and said, Hugh, we're playing the Johnnies this coming Sunday. I said, Frank, I'm in England. What are you talking about? I know you're in England. You don't think I thought you were in Ballygally or somewhere like that. But I've arranged for you to fly home. Bristol is 78 miles north of Newton Abbott. There's a flight goes from Bristol twice a week on a Mondays and a Fridays to Belfast operated by BEA, that was British European Airways, as BEA used to be called. The ticket I purchased, pre-purchased, and you'll get it at the BEA desk in Bristol Airport when you arrive there. I said, Frank, I've no money, I've no ready cash. Don't worry, I've prepaid for it. It's just, it was five pounds, and I remember this distinctly, five pounds, 12 and sixpence for a return flight. I said, Frank, well, what, who's going to pay? He said, don't worry, Hugh, I'll fix it up with the 
Berkshire when I got back home. At that time, the total grant for the university for Queen's at that time was £95 a year. There was I getting 6% of this in expenses. I said, thanks, Frank, I'll do that for you. We said, Hugh, just remember one thing. When you get home and you're talking to any of the Johnnies, who are you as Belfast men, don't tell them, for goodness sake, that you're flying from Bristol to Belfast. I could, what, what's, 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 what's the big secret? He said, well, the flight that BEA operate from Bristol, they fly a heron, a de Havilland Heron 114, which is a four-propeller-engined plane. So, he said, that's all right, but it's known as the Heron of the Queen's Flight. Don't tell anybody, or they'll shake it out on you. For me, this episode summarized Frank and his commitment to the, to the, the Queen's Club. He was a consummate organizational man. He had me boxed in and organized. He had everything done comprehensively and in advance. And he had done it with a certain amount of humor, which was tantamount. And then I think of an occasion like this, I certainly would always have looked forward to his presence and his company, because he had a great basic sense of humor. And I always knew when he'd be annoyed with me because he'd always call me Huey with a short. And I have very many happy memories of him on this occasion. When I went up to Queens as a fresher in 19, the early 1950s, but 53, I joined with uh, Christy Mallon and Paddy Duffy and the boys, got me joined the, the, the GAA club. And we used to go up to Cherryville on a Saturday afternoon and kick about. And there was no really organized football or combative games with, with teams from outside uh, the university. I couldn't understand this. But anyway, it came up to Sigerson time. But at that time, I didn't know what the Sigerson Cup was. Somebody said the Sigerson Cup's coming off. It meant nothing to me. But up until the 19 late 1940s, early 1950s, Queen's didn't have enough Gaelic footballers to field 15 good quality players. And that was before the 1947 Free Education Act when we had a lot of students coming from St. Pat's Armagh, St. Columns Derry, and so on and so forth. And at that time, coming up to Sigerson, they used to get ringers in. And I remember coming up to Sigerson the team went up on the board, and uh, I thought that I might have got a chance to be on, but it wasn't on. But I noticed these strange names, and they were uh, was known now as ringers who came from outside, and some of them from local Belfast teams to play for for the university. The end of the t at the after the, f the first time after that match we were exposed to, and it was interesting. It was. Uh, the Tyrone Mafia nearly, Christy Mallon, Paddy Duffy, and Frank, who su suggested, uh, not suggested, we are not going to have that anymore. We're not going to have ringers play. We're going to have guys who are actually at the university uh, who are currently students, even if we never win another game. 
And that was the start before we got Paddy Harry and Paddy O'Hara. Pardon me. Before we got Paddy O'Hara involved with us. And again, it was Christy and Frank and Paddy Duffy who suggested getting Paddy involved in coaching us. But up until that time, the full team included a lot of ringers. I remember distinctly, this, the, I'm sure you've all heard this old apocryphal story about one of the ringers that used to play for Queens was a chap called Harry O'Neill. Ambrose, you would remember his name. <laughs> Harry, Harry was a rather robust, over-robust footballer who played full forward for Antrim and he was a, a general labour around Belfast, a fellow of great physique and he would play and do his damage. And the story goes that after one of the matches, one of these clever UCD fellas was talking to him and asking him the usual thing, what's your club, who do you play for, what county do you play, so on and so forth. And, they, and Harry answered him succinctly and quickly. And then the fellow says, and what subjects are you studying at Queen's? And Paddy looked at him and says, I'm doing sums. And that was part of the story. Anyway, those are some of, it's interesting, I have, as Sean O'Neill said, I enjoyed my football. I can't remember much about the games and it always depended on, as you say, Brenton Donaghy to tell me how to do. And Brenton actually, to this day, tells everyone, maybe rightly so, because when I took off my glasses, he said, I don't think you can see properly, Hugh. And Brenton used to shout, Q, turn to your left. Q, go to your right. Or Q, stay out of my area and go up front. But, and recollection, life is full of milestones and pointers and things. And one of the interesting things is that my time at, at Queen's and my involvement with the football team was one of the succinctly happy times and contented times and it's full of memories. And it's interesting, I can come here tonight and I see faces and people and meet up again and re remember incidents and happenings that happened all those years ago. And yet, memory-wise, I can't even remember where I leave my shoes in the morning, you know? But, and I think that is the nature of a time when you form friendships and cohesion and it's, I don't know why, we were trying to analyze it, Kevin Hapney and I were talking about it earlier on, why we can come back to these times that are very important, very memorable, and most enjoyable. It was with deep sadness, I think, of the people who have passed on and my friends. And I can think it's hard to remember that it's 60 years since we first won. And 60 years is a lifetime, and to finally, to, before I leave you, I remember distinctly, I was as a medical student doing a ward round uh, with a surgeon at the Belfast City Hospital, and we came to this patient, this old man of 61, and he had a bilateral inguinal hernia, and Mr. Smith it was, talked to the man, Mr. Graham, and he, he, he gave me a great honor of saying, Mr. O'Kane, as a surgeon, Mr. O'Kane and I have consulted 
about your case and we feel that at 61 you're far too old for this operation. So, so we're going to give you a bilateral truss and a bilateral truss was like a medieval torture belt. It went round and it held the hernias, compressed them. It was an awful thing. And the man said, as it was, and he doffed the hat that's happened in those days, the doctor, yes, Mr. Smith, whatever you say, I'll wear anything you want me to. And I'll never forget. And I kept to think, 61, and here we are, some of us are four score a year and ten or thereabouts, and we're still with it and looking forward to the future. And if the future is anything like tonight, it'll be most enjoyable. Thank you very much. Thank you.